0: Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support. The fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly master classes with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com/slash tennis IQ slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. <laughs> Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax.
1: And I'm Josh Berger. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the 2023 Wimbledon Championships. On the men's side, Carlos Alcaraz beat Novak Djokovic in a classic, in a five-setter. Um, and we will definitely be talking about that. And on the women's side, Marketa Vondrosova uh, beat Anz Jabbour, um to win her first uh, major championship. So um I think I think there's a lot of different themes that we want to touch on today, both about um the champions on, on each side, men's and women's side, um, but also some other themes that that we noticed um throughout. Um I know there are some definitely some storylines that that we wanted to touch on as well. Um Chris Eubanks and the run of Chris Eubanks being one of them and sort of his journey leading leading uh him to this point. Um but yeah, I think there's a number of different directions that we can go in. Um, should we start with maybe the Alcaraz Djokovic final, and maybe talk about some of the the themes from the men's side first, and then we can uh, talk about the women's the women's final. Does that how
0: does that sound? Yeah, that sounds good, Josh. And um, as you said, it was it was a classic. I think in terms of the drama of the of the match, I don't know that uh, the whole thing was like top-level tennis the entire time. I think um, there were times where both guys were struggling to find their games a little bit, certainly Alcaraz at the beginning. Um, I, I felt like Alcaraz's best tennis actually came out in the fifth set. He, he, I think he really found his drop shot game much more so in the fifth than he had in previous sets and, and really finding good moments to use it where Djokovic didn't even try you know, showing that 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 was absolutely the right play in that moment. And so, uh, yeah, I thought that was a a very interesting match in terms of um, if we look at, say, the mental strength of of an Alcaraz and handling um, a set, first set, 6-1. He had break points in the first game against Djokovic's serve, didn't win them, had a shaky service game. And then, the, then his game seemed to struggle the rest of the set. And um, so it was going to be interesting to see how he would turn that around. Like it was similar to Paris in that regard. You know, and in Paris at Roland Garros, he had to, uh, well, he suffered seemingly cramps that, that got in the way of his ability to compete the last couple of sets. And so I think everybody was looking out for in this match, how will he handle the tension and pressure of playing a final, you know, his first Wimbledon final. And obviously it looks like he handled that. He passed that test. Um, and personally, Josh, my, my thought was that he was going to pass that test. I, I think he was going to learn a lot from the experience in Paris and be, be completely ready for however he was going to feel in meeting Djokovic again. And so, um, you know, although at first it didn't necessarily look that way in that first set, but I think the the nice thing about Alcaraz is that he appears to be always very optimistic in his approach that he can play better and very positive in his approach. And so, and I think he has the self-belief to beat top guys. He's certainly beaten Djokovic before, never, you know, this magnitude, but but I think he believes that he can and he always believes he can play better. And that's a real strength of his that I don't know that everybody else on the tour necessarily has that, especially when facing someone like Djokovic and, um, and he was able to do it. And, and so it was, it was very interesting sort of back and forth. It almost looked like it was on track to be a four set win. And then, you know, Djokovic, here he comes and the guy is really tough. He's just tough to beat. And, and, and that's why you have to give, I think you have to give Alcaraz a lot of credit. And, and Djokovic gave him a lot of credit, both in you know post-match speech as well as in, in his press conference, um, even saying that, that Alcaraz has elements of, of the big three, elements of Novak, elements of Roger, elements of Rafa, and, and might be more complete than, than all three of them. And uh, that's very nice to say. And I think a lot of us, when we watch Alcaraz play, can see that, can see that for sure. So uh, I think great, great final. Um, The drama was there. There are a lot of good mental themes going on there. Really probably the two best players we have in the world right now, especially in, in five set matches. They're both very, very tough to beat. And, uh, Hopefully we can get some more matches between these two. Yeah, in the coming uh coming months and years, you know, I think Djokovic he appears to be in f- the physical shape that he's not he's not faltering at all. And um so I hope he'll be around for a while.
1: Absolutely. A- absolutely. And uh I think as tennis fans, you know, I think we can all root root for having more more of these matches between the two of them because um i think in in certain ways they are able to bring out their best and that and as you said that doesn't mean that that they're at their best the entire time um but i think there's something that they're able to bring out out of each other it's that that fight that you know that that battle um and yeah the the match was was quite intense i mean i think that first set where um where Djokovic won at six one Djokovic was at his best and Alcaraz was not Alcaraz was tight, you know, looked nervous, looked a little edgy. um, And yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't think too many people would have expected that it would have been three sets like that, but you know, I think it, it was definitely not the start that Alcaraz would have wanted, especially after Paris, where in that, um, you know the in paris where they split the first two sets it was one set all and then alcaraz had these you know pretty horrible cramps in the third and fourth sets and and lost those sets 6-1 six, 6-1 one, six, one, um and really you know physically just couldn't compete so to start off the the next match that these two played in that same way of, you know the, that same scoreline of 6-1 i think um it would be disheartening. And it actually reminded me a little bit of um, a different match from a few years ago of Nadal against Dominic team. I think it was the 2018 U S open quarterfinals and uh, Nadal lost the first set six love. And sometimes I'll bring that up when, when talking to athletes and it's like, okay, how, how do you react when you lose a set six love? And I think the same can be said when you lose a set six, one, you know, what is it? For, for most players, junior players, adult players, how often are you coming back from losing a, a first set like that? For most players, it's it's very very infrequently. Um, but Alcaraz, you know, lost that set six, six one, seemed to regroup pretty well going into the second. This the second set was a a battle. Um, I know Djokovic had a set point in that tiebreaker. Um, Seemed he seemed to be maybe missing a couple of shots that, that he wouldn't have normally missed, and again, maybe that's the moment in a certain way that, that led to that. I think Alcaraz, you know, having Alcaraz on the other side of the net probably led to that as well in some way. But Alcaraz managed to win that second set, and then that third set was had one of the longest games mm. I've ever seen, uh, just in terms of how many deuces there were, you know, back and forth and back and forth. Wasn't it 20? 27 minutes, something like
0: that. I think so. Maybe even longer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was remarkable. Before we move on though, Josh, let's go back to the tiebreaker just because Djokovic's tiebreak record had been like so amazing and he's up 3-0. And then it was like his first unforced error in a tiebreak in in a long time. And it seemed like it almost opened up like this sort of... uh, floodgate of errors, not that really a floodgate, but he started making more and more errors after that. And that carried through into that, that third set. And this is very interesting that that, that happened. Um, it's almost like that was the turning point in the match. Because thinking about it, Djokovic is up 6-1. Now he's in a tiebreaker and he's been dominating tiebreakers. And if he goes up two sets, this is a really tough, hill for Alcaraz to climb back like I felt like Alcaraz needs to win this tiebreaker and going down 3-0 was obviously not optimal towards that and then all of a sudden Djokovic started maybe feeling it a little bit a lot more errors that crept in and then 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 that that long game and and losing that game probably took a bit out of him definitely
1: Definitely. No, I, I think you bring up a great point that that um, up to that point, yeah, Djokovic had won a number of tiebreakers in a row. I don't have the the stat in front of me, but um, I know it was throughout the French Open. He had won, you know, every tiebreaker he played in. I think it was maybe a little bit leading up to that and also hadn't had any unforced errors, as you mentioned. So I think just really showing a really remarkable ability to not miss to play, you know, and it's not like he's pushing or right. you know yeah. just making balls in the court. Obviously, for anyone who's watched him play, he's but he's able to just you know really not get into this mode where he just doesn't miss and doesn't beat himself and sort of forces the opponent to try to you know see what they can bring out to to beat him. Um, and yeah, I think at that at that that at three zero that really was a turning point, point. and maybe you know. Three zero to 3-1 is not, you know, you're still up a mini break, right? Um, it it shouldn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily need to be the turning point that it was, but it, it almost made him feel less, it, made, it almost made him feel a little bit beatable, right? Yeah, Where yeah. It, when somebody yeah. has won that many tiebreakers in a row without any unforced errors, and then all of a sudden there's a crack that it's like, okay, maybe... Yeah, maybe this person is not unbeatable, right? Maybe maybe there there is a way to get through. And then you know, just I, again with with players at, at this level, there's yeah, it, all it takes is one little slip up, and then that's the set. And then you know, once it's one set all, it was it was almost anybody's match. And you know, Alcaraz got off to a yeah, got off to a nice start in that third set, went up a break pretty quickly. And then had that, you know, marathon game. uh, And, uh, yeah, and and then sort of ran away with that third set. And I think maybe Djokovic let that happen in a certain way to maybe conserve some energy, which we, you know, not sure we would always recommend that for people that are listening to, uh, because, you know, people that are listening aren't playing players of the caliber of an Alcaraz or a Djokovic. And I think, you know, people that most people are playing against, you know, if if it's you're if you're at 3-1, 4-1, you know, rather than the opponent necessarily running away with it, they could crack. And then all of a sudden you're at four-all. But I think Djokovic may seem to make a calculated decision at that point to, you know, let Alcaraz win the rest of that set and you know really focus his efforts in the fourth set, which worked, and he won the fourth set, and then you know Alcaraz won a, a pretty tight fifth, but you know, he did get the the lead relatively early. And that said as well. Um, But yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some, some takeaways. I mean, I think, you know, and, and we did an episode up all about Carlos Alcaraz about a, a little more than a year
0: ago. I think it was after he. I was beat after Madrid, Djokovic. right. I and mean, we beat Nadal and Djokovic and then Zverev in a row.
1: Right. Right. Which we hadn't seen from, from anybody, you know, there's the, yeah. the next gen uh, of, you know, the likes of Zverev and Sissipas and Medvedev and, you know, great players, but nobody had done that. And then we see this teenager come out and beat both of these, you know, legends back to back and, you know, and follow it up with, with beating Zverev who has seemed to, you know, bring out some of his best tennis at the master's level. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, so, so p- people can, you know, refer back to that, that episode. And we'd sort of talk about his rise, but I think one of the things that, I think there's a number of things we can say about him. And I think, you know, there's there's been plenty of accolades about Djokovic over the years, and those are well deserved, of course. But I think with the fact that Djokovic said that Alcaraz has qualities of the big three, of all three of them, and I think people have noticed that as well. It's sort of I think he's sort of called uh, Alcaraz sort of a combination of that. I think it's I think it's true. I see, you know, Nadal's fighting spirit, I see Djokovic's fighting spirit, Djokovic's defensive abilities. Federer's ability to sort of constantly attack and constantly play offense and, um, you know, and, and not really let up in that way. And, you know, give players the space to sort of breathe um, but sort of just keep the foot on the gas, so to speak. Um, And I think, yeah, his mentality really has shown and and you can hear the way that he talks. He's, you know, he does stay very humble. He doesn't talk from a point of cockiness or anything or arrogance and, you know, if anybody could it's it's him um but he really just seems to relish the moment I mean I know he talked earlier in the tournament about seeming to want to have this opportunity against Djokovic I think he said before the match that you know the final was going to be the best day of his life um just even being out there not even talking about winning it um but yeah it really seemed to just enjoy being out there and ready to battle he you know he knew that it wasn't going to be easy and he probably could have guessed it would have taken five sets and yeah just really a quite a quite a final i think you know very memorable and i think quite a few quite a few takeaways
0: yeah and i'm glad you brought up the you know the humility piece i think we increasingly see that as a you know a component of of being a a great performer for a number of reasons, I think um, one, when we are more humble, we tend to be more open to learning things, and that could be learning from anybody, and also learning more from your experiences. Um, and I think it is also, on the other side, it's just a, it's a respectful way to treat your opponents. It, I think, it also helps you compete against your opponents because it's not ego-centric it's more about um just doing your best enjoying things when you're out there and it's not about i have to beat you of course you it is one-on-one so it, it could be hard to to take the ego out of it but i think uh the more we as players work on that humility piece the more opportunities we have to grow and be better and you know i think a little bit when you when you begin to talk you know, I know you, you have some really great thoughts about Chris Eubanks that, that you want to share. I think there's a, almost a realization of that with him as well. Is when we get into it, there's this idea of being more open to enjoyment and, and the experience and the journey and less about an egocentric piece about beating others and, and certain rankings. And so the way you hear Alcaraz talk, it's, it's indicative of how Nadal has spoken over the years. You know, there's something in that maybe Spanish mentality where they are tremendous fighters on the court, but they're off the court. They're tremendously humble and modest, and um, are very respectful of who they're playing, and, and in a way that gives them an advantage because they don't look at matches ever as I should win. It's more about I go out there, I do my best, we see what happens, and and I can be personally satisfied. At the end, if I play with a good attitude, play with great effort, leave it all out there. And so I think we, we are seeing that with, with Alcaraz. And uh, and uh, and like I said earlier, hopefully we see more matches of, the, of these these two. And hopefully we see more players like Alcaraz coming out with his mentality. Um, we do have some really good young players. I think, you know, Holger Runa, who's got great game. He hasn't quite cracked the code mentally yet but that doesn't mean he won't because uh, he's still you know he's the same age as, as Alcaraz and you know it took Federer a little bit it took even Djokovic a little bit longer um, and so you know tennis wise he's right up there with those guys and so we'll, we'll, we'll see how, how some of the even newer players uh, fit into this picture
1: Definitely. No, I I think there's a number of young guys that that yeah, including Holger Runa, um, Yannick Sinner, I think is, you know, definitely gonna be a contender in in on on every surface. Um, Runa's interesting that I, I feel like in certain ways mentally he's I've been very impressed. Um, you know, he's he's won some some marathon matches, some epic matches. I think he beat um Alejandro, uh, Davidovich Fokina in like a, in a, you know, marathon five setter. I think he's won some other, you know, pretty intense, um, three setters, five setters in his past. So he definitely seems to battle and fight, um, does also seem to maybe have some, you know, controversy follow him or maybe get in some fights, um, with, you know, opponents, umpires, that that sort of thing that maybe can derail players at times as well. Um, but yeah, no, I think, yeah, I, I think there's there's a number of players that that will contend with with an Alcaraz and and a Djokovic and you know Medvedev in, in years to come. But you know for whatever reason, Alcaraz has seemed to get there a little bit faster, and you know the fact that he's you know number one and two Grand Slam titles at twenty is uh, remarkable, and I, I'm yeah definitely excited to see what what he can, you know, continue to, to produce in, in upcoming years. I think, you know, especially if he can stay healthy um, there's, you know, not, not too much that can, you know, necessarily get in his way, but I think there are a number of players that can um, contend uh, potentially. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, definitely wanted to, to talk a little bit about Chris Eubanks and I think um, his rise has definitely been remarkable. Um, and, you know, but I don't think I'm the first person to say that. I think a lot of people have been talking about that, uh, recently, but, um, you know, I I think he's a a guy that was, you know, for the last, I think few years, maybe like up to five years has sort of, you know, been, uh, and I think this is actually from a quote that I can share, um, been between the 150, 220 range. So, you know, playing mostly challenger events, playing, you know, some two fifties, You know, here, you know, but playing some um, ATP events, whether it's wild cards, whether it's qualifying, um, whether, yeah, you know, other opportunities, but playing a lot at that challenger level, playing a lot, you know, um, being in a lot of qualifying for for Grand Slam tournaments, um, but recently has really made his breakthrough. And I think it was Miami, he made it to the quarterfinals, broke into the top 100, um, and then... Continued playing well, play, uh, won Mallorca on grass, and I think he made a comment that leading up to that, despite his game being you know a big serving, aggressive game, very aggressive game, hadn't um, necessarily always felt so comfortable on grass, and I think a lot of players don't necessarily practice as much on grass, if if ever um or have the experience playing on it so i think for a lot of people there's a there's definitely a learning curve there um but seemed to feel comfortable won Majorca and then made it all the way to the quarterfinals beating um players including cam nori and uh stefano sissipas and took uh daniel medvedev to five sets in the quarterfinals um and i think there's there's a lot to say about him i mean i think Um, number one, just when you hear him talk, just, you know, very eloquent, very seems like the the world's nicest guy, um, you know, constantly has a smile on his face, both during interviews and and during matches, you see it a lot. Um, and I, and I think just his, his attitude about sort of trusting his process and, and really prioritizing that. And I can read a quote that he shared after, um, after his quarterfinal defeat against Daniel Medvedev um, really shows this. And I think one other thing that's interesting, and I know other people have mentioned this, but he actually did some some commentary. I think it was last year for Tennis Channel, um, which is interesting. You know, I think there were certain periods of time in the calendar where he wasn't playing. Um, I think maybe certain weeks in the calendar where he didn't play and did some commentary for tennis channel and actually talked about how that helped his game actually talked about how that, you know, being able to analyze an opponent was helpful and even talked about how during matches he was, would think at times about, okay, if, if I wasn't in this, you know, if, if I was commentating this match, if I was watching this match from an outsider's point of view, what would I say? What advice, you know, would I, would I give myself? And I think that that relates to a lot of the things that we've talked about in terms of you know, trying to take more of an outsider's point of view, trying to be more non-judgmental or objective in our thinking about our own game. Um, And yeah, I think there's definitely a lot to be said there. But let me read this quote from his uh, after his quarterfinal match. It is a little bit on the longer side, so you can bear with me. But um, I think it is really important, and and I think there's a lot to to talk about here. Um, So the quote was, now that you've made the quarterfinals, what do you want next? What is your next goal? And he says, it's a bit tough right now after the match to jump right into setting new, especially lofty goals at this point. I think my goals are a little bit different. I think that if if I can continue to have the joy I've had on court for these past three weeks, continue to work as hard as I've been doing over the past year, 12 months, I think good things are going to happen and it's kind of going to take care of itself. It would be very easy for me to say, I think after this, I'm not 100% sure, but I should be around 30-something live in the live rankings. Um, It would be very easy to say, okay, I want to be top 20 now. I've set goals based on a ranking before. It didn't go well. I've kind of thrown that out the window. I'm just kind of enjoying the journey at this point. Wherever my career takes me and I can continue to have the fun that I've been having, I can continue to work as hard as I've been working. Where I end up, I end up. I think at this point, especially considering the fact I've spent five years hovering in that 220 to 150 range, playing so many challengers, at this point, it's just the cherry on top. I'm just enjoying myself. I'm having a great time. I'm probably having the most fun I've ever had in playing tennis. I'm going to to continue to try to ride this momentum out. We're going to see where it takes me. I'm not trying to avoid your question or dance around it. It's just genuinely my perspective. Two years ago, I tried to set the goal for here, uh, where I wanted to be ranked, what I wanted to do. Didn't really work out that well for me. I'm trying to take a little bit of a different approach. So definitely a lot there. Um, Brian, I wanted to see some of your thoughts about about Chris Eubanks, about his run, and about, and about that quote as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, the nice thing about Chris Eubanks is, you and I, we were, we attended the Newport tournament together last year, and we got to see him. And I had actually seen him maybe the month before when I was at, in Orlando. He was playing a challenger event there. And he's a lot of fun to watch. He's very smooth. As you said, he's very aggressive. Great kick serve. Um, and, yeah, just just he looked like a guy who you, you wondered why he was – why he was at that level. He looked like he had tools where he could do more. And now we see that it's, he's progressing. I love the quote because it reminds me of Eric Buterak's approach in his TED Talk about simply trying to enjoy that journey and, and really with the mission of just becoming the best player you can become. And I think that that's a, it's a great overarching mission or vision to why one plays tennis. The goal piece is more, I think, or the ranking piece, if you choose to use that, is more of a milestone look at, at things. But the overall vision and mission should really be about just becoming the best player you can become. And the nice thing that we're hearing with Chris is he's developing the wisdom and perspective and he's really putting together the different pieces that, that work for him. The enjoyment of it. Um, you know, the enjoyment of the training, the enjoyment of playing and competing. Um, we, we've, Josh, we've talked about definitions of what it means to be competitive and the top priority of that is to enjoy what you're doing. And, and so when you, it's, that's something I would, I would hope that people can latch onto from that quote. It is really important to enjoy this process and it's not always easy but if you can, in a way, commit to enjoying, as Eric Buterak put it, the daily struggle to get better. Can you enjoy the, the challenge of the fight of a match and then still be respectful after? Um, can you just see where the journey is going to take you as you put in your daily work? Um, not only Eric Buterak, but even even John Wooden, the famous college basketball coach, talked about creating what he called masterpiece days. Can you just have a great day today and then do it again tomorrow? Don't worry so much about timelines and and whatever. Can you just get the most out of today that you can and then repeat all those processes again tomorrow? So you create a string of masterpiece days. And I think what we're hearing Chris say is that he's, he's figured out at this point how to create those masterpiece days and how to string them together. And now it's, now it's sort of like the, the fruit of that work has, has come out. And that's, it's so cool to see that. So cool to see someone, you know, I guess I use this with the whole Garuna to figure, see someone actually crack the code and, 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 and now is, is progressing. And I think that that's a big part of all of our journeys is can we figure out how we put this, these pieces together that make our puzzle more and more complete and, and we get better and better um, at what, what we do, whether that's tennis, whether it's some other, you know, pursuit you have or a professional career. Can you constantly be looking to to put this so that it begins to click more and more and that's. It's great to hear about Chris Eubanks figuring this out.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it often is, you know, step by step. And maybe that step by step approach shows up in the rankings or shows up in some other quantifiable way when people, when outsiders look at someone's results, you know, I think of junior players, for instance, or or adult players and, you know, thinking about things like UTR or NTRP you know, level or world tennis number, or however we want to measure, you know, USTA rankings, however we want to measure um, success in that way. But um, yeah, I think there's, you know, we can also measure it and, and maybe it's better to do so based on that process, based on how hard we're working, based on the enjoyment that we're finding, based on us seeing the progress on a day-to-day basis. And maybe that shows up in, the, in our matches, you know, sometimes... I think our ranking or our results are sort of a a lagging indicator behind where our game actually is, where, and what I mean, by and I know we've sort of talked about this in the past with, you know, habits and, um, you know, goals and things like that. But um, yeah, you know, sometimes we get to a certain level, but the ranking hasn't quite caught up to where we're at. Um, And so it can sort of be more of a lagging indicator, something like, you know, uh, our, um, you know, our fitness results or maybe a, a lagging indicator of our, um, you know, our our lifestyle, right? Our, our you know, diet and, and nutrition and things like that. Um, and yeah, I, I think sometimes things like results and rankings can also be a, a lagging indicator in a certain way. And we can see ourselves putting in the work and see ourselves making progress. And sometimes it it feels like, you know, we're not seeing the the rankings that we want to. And I think, you know, I, I think there's different comparisons we can make here. I think Chris Eubanks is a great person that people can think of if they're seeing this in their own game and they're like, why am I not achieving these results? I see how well I've been playing. I see the progress I've been making. You know, there's also the the old um bamboo uh, story of, you know, that you know the the bamboo is underground and i think it's about five years it's you know it's watered and it's you know it's building this this really strong foundation um but it hasn't you know left the ground and all of a sudden in a matter of you know a couple weeks it it just takes off and and grows you know uh you know tons and tons and tons of feet in a very short amount of time after you know five years of nothing that people that others can see so I think there's, you know, there's that as a comparison. There's, there's a number of different comparisons, but I think it's it's really cool to see a player at this level who can really embody that that sort of a philosophy, that that sort of a mindset of prioritizing some of these important things, prioritizing that I'm gonna keep working hard, you know, I'm really enjoying the sport. And it doesn't seem like he's just enjoying it because of the results he's had. Correct. It seems like yeah, it seems like he's enjoying that journey a lot more where Um. Yeah. Maybe for a while, you know, being in that one hundred and fifty to two hundred and twenty range, as he talked about, maybe it was. It sounds like it was a lot more about rankings. Okay, I'm. I'm one hundred and seventy five right now. Okay, I want to break into the top one hundred and fifty by, by this date. Okay, then I want to get to the top hundred by this date. Then I want to get you know top seventy five. And in reality, progress doesn't happen in a straight line. It's not like okay, I'm. I'm. You know, i'm I'm here today, and you know then a month from now I want to be here and then two months and then three months. And I think we can think of it that way, but I, I don't think that's realistic. I think in in general, there's a there's always a lot of ups and downs for for any any player in, in any sort of you know any sort of pursuit. Um, I, I almost think of it, and I and maybe I've made this comparison or we've talked about this in the past, I almost think of it like the stock market in a, in a certain way where you know on a day to day basis there's there's ups and downs and there's a lot of emotions around those ups and downs maybe the market's up a percent or it's down you know 1.5% or half a percent or whatever it is and on that day there's a lot of emotion one way or the other but can we have the ability to zoom out a little bit to take a step back to see okay where are things going this quarter over the past 3 months or where are things going over the last year over the last five to 10 years, you know, then we can start to really see the direction that things are going in, whether that's the market, whether that's one particular company. And I think that that's the same thing when we think about progress, you know, we have to understand that there is always going to be those ups and downs, there's always going to be, you know, some of those challenges along the way. But if we can keep the right process if we can keep doing things right if we can you know also understand that you know by having that process it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to win right now that doesn't necessarily mean that our results are always going to be there or we're always going to win matches that we feel like we should um but over time that's the the sort of a that's that's what we need to to really make make the sort of progress in the rankings and and make sort of that you know more objective process, made that objective um, improvement that that outsiders can see, um, but it takes time. And sometimes it's faster, you know, with a guy like Alcaraz, and who's just burst onto the scene and went from, I think, a ranking of 32 to, to one in, in less than a year. Um, and sometimes it takes a lot longer. And somebody like a Chris Eubank stays in that 150 to 220 range for a number of years. And then all of a sudden, like Bamboo, just takes off and has this huge breakthrough. So I think it's you know I think we we see it both ways, but I think with both of them, they really do seem to prioritize that process over over everything. And whether sooner in the case of Alcaraz or or longer in the case of of Eubanks, um, have both really broken through and also have seemed to maintain their strong foundation. Maybe I'm going a little too far with this. Uh, comparison here, but uh, I, think, I think there's a lot there.
0: I think there's a lot there, and, and I think it's a good point to, to bring up, and, and then let's see how he does the rest of the summer and, um, and, the, and the rest of the year, obviously. So, um, How about we move to the, to the women's final? I think that um, that was a very interesting match, and as you noted, just that uh, Marketa Vondrasova won four and four. And, um, yeah, what were your thoughts on this match? You know, Jabor coming in another another grand slam final for her, and uh, seemingly the the favorite, uh, but didn't work out for her,
1: yeah, very impressive result from Vondrusova. Um, you know the the fact that she had been, I think it was just last year had had actually been at Wimbledon as a spectator yeah. um because of you know a, a serious injury that she had, had um and to get all the, the way to you know as an unseeded player um actually winning winning the tournament and beating you know a lot of top players along the way such as you know Pagula and Svitolina and and then ultimately Ons jabor in the final um and has a very interesting game where she doesn't necessarily blow people off the court you know she's she's aggressive but she's she's not hitting as many winners as, you know, some of these other players necessarily, but she's, you know, very, very solid. And yeah, I think Anz Jabor was definitely the favorite going in and and for good reason, you know, this was her third major final has been a, you know, top, top 10 player for, for a while now. Um, But didn't seem, Anz didn't seem to play up to her ability, up to her capability that day. And, you know, I think we can all speculate as to why maybe it's the moment, you know, I th- there, I think there's some pressure there, you know, in terms of, you know, I think Ans has really been a trailblazer in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, being the first Arab woman to get to this level, being the first, you know, African woman to get to, to this sort of level in terms of playing in, you know, uh, grand slam final, you know, major finals. Um, but, has, I think has, has had a tough time when, you know, when, when she's been at that, in that moment in the, you know, in the finals of some of these grand slams, just getting over that, that last hurdle. And uh, no, I think it, it shows that the pressure can, can impact everybody, including the best players in the world, which I think is a point that, you know, we've talked about a lot in this show that I try to make to athletes that I work with, where it's like, Hey, you know, we, Don't judge yourself if you feel nervous, if you feel pressure when you're playing, because the same thing happens to the best in the world. And they're, you know, dedicating their lives and careers to this. They're spending a lot of times, a lot of time working on it. So I think, yeah, Ans did definitely seem to feel the moment. Definitely. I think her consistency wasn't there in the way that it had been in previous matches. Um, Also didn't seem to, you know, I, I think, what makes An so great is her ability to really mix things up. You know, use the drop shot, use the slice, come into net. You know, also not an over... She's not an overpowering player either, but she has maybe more tools than anybody in turn, You know, at, at her disposal. But, um, you know, it, it almost felt like maybe she was out of rhythm or out of sync a little bit. And then because of that, something like the drop shot, becomes less of a surprise tactic and it becomes more expected and then when it's used it's a lot less effective. Um, so I think she, you know, had a tough time maybe bringing out her standard or her her level that we've you know grown accustomed to seeing. And uh, Vondrosova really rose to the occasion um, and it almost reminded me of um, a couple of years ago when we saw uh, Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez, you know, who both of them for the were at the at, you know, in a major final for the first time and, you know, sort of riding this wave of emotions, wave of momentum, and sort of just, you know, I think for, for Emma, that that sort of carried her through that final. And I think with was sort of a similar scenario where she, you know, not that she was as young or anything as, as Emma Raducanu, but um, yeah, had quite a bit of momentum going into it and just sort of seemed to manage to, keep that rolling, you know, keep her game up, maybe didn't seem to, you know, focus as much on the moment itself of, you know, winning a Wimbledon final, but just seemed to focus more on her game and managed to, to you know, bring out that solid tennis that that has gotten her to this point
0: and, you know, I, and helped her be successful and then win that match. I think the the solid tennis, Josh, is the point I wanted to emphasize with Vontra that that um, not that she's like, Jokovic I'm not saying she's going to become like a Djokovic but she in a way was made herself hard to beat like a Djokovic. Um she covers the court very well. She's able to, you know, use a, almost a similar shot to like Federer with this this sort of squash forehand uh type of retrieval shot. Um and she makes players, you know, beat her. And um, that's a really effective way to put pressure on opponents, especially ones that are nervous, is by making them beat you. And, and Jabor admitted that, you know, she felt pressure coming into this match. Uh, she didn't think she played great, she didn't serve well. And I think you could even see it, you, know, watching it in the US on ESPN, Chris Evert made the comment, that jibor was making far more errors in this match than she had made in in previous ones and i think i think Jabour went almost kind of on a roller coaster of play so she she had some very poor games and she had some great games and then then some of the poor games would come out more at the end of the set and uh that that was really the difference but where Vondrousova tended to be a little bit more solid as you said throughout and um yeah, there's a good lesson there, Josh. I think for players and in in, in trying and in understanding that making good decisions. So, our episode on seven shot tennis, our episode on uh, playing by the rules, are are ways of you not beating yourself. And that's a great base to start with. And and Vondrasova really executed that well the entire tournament. No one could beat her in this tournament. We'll see how that goes for um, again the rest of the year. Sometimes people can get really hot for a week or two. We've seen that in the past, especially on the women's side, and and then it's difficult to to maintain that. I mean, you brought up Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez. They really haven't uh, ascended to the the success that that U.S. Open final might have indicated for them, right? So. It's a tough sport. it's tough to maintain this level and um, and this level of results for Jabor, let's hope she learns from it. you know I think that's going to be her goal is is to learn from it. This is uh you know a third time it, she's in good company in terms of uh, players who've lost you know their first few Grand Slam finals and have gone on to win many others so um, she's putting herself in good positions, you know, and maybe she's at that bamboo moment, Josh. Right? Maybe there's there's something ready to spring, spring into into success here. So uh, that's the good news for her. She keeps getting herself into these good positions, and I'm sure she'll figure it out. Um, and so that's you know that I, I I'm optimistic for her. She's a, she's a great player. She obviously enjoys what she does. With each of these experiences, I'm sure she, you know, tweaks something here and there to help make it better for the next time. And so, uh, we'll be very interesting to see how she performs in New York.
1: Absolutely, and and you mentioned that a lot of, you know, that there are a lot of top players who have had similar experiences where they have, you know, gotten to the final, you know, gotten to multiple finals, and you know, m- maybe didn't bring out their best tennis and, and you know, didn't end up winning them, but ended up being successful a little bit later. And I think another player we can compare her to, or, you know, that, that you know, we'll see if her, her career goes a similar trajectory, but I think even somebody like a Novak Djokovic. And I think, you know, people often think, remember his more, you know, his last 12 or so years, I think since 2011, when he really, you know, had this incredible 2011 for those that remember. And I think since then has been, you know, a pretty dominant force in, in the sport. But before that, since he burst onto the scene, I think right around 2005, getting getting to the top of the game, um, between then and, um, you know, 2010, um, I know he won one major. I think it was it, the Australian Open in 2009? Eight, I think. Eight? 2008? Um, and, but other than that, he was solidly number three, he was solidly number three in the rankings behind Nadal and Federer. Those, those two were the dominant forces, uh, Djokovic, you know, was, was certainly winning a lot of matches, but wasn't, hadn't necessarily broken through and beaten those top two guys and and taken their spot. And then all of a sudden some things changed. He made some changes with his diet. Seem to focus more on the mental side of the game, um, you know, focused on some some other things physically, yoga, different things. He has a, a book called Serve to Win that people can you know learn more about some of these some of these changes that he's made. Um, but uh, you know, really, I think he's a person that um, athletes can look up to also in terms of this this same sort of idea, the same sort of bamboo comparison. Um, where it's like you know, sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes someone bursts onto the scene at 18 or 19 and gets to the top of the game, like an Alcaraz, and sometimes it they get close and maybe that close is being number three, or maybe that close, you know, being close is um having the game and maybe the results aren't showing in that same way, like a Chris Eubanks. But over time, they keep working at it, they keep improving, and we see with Djokovic what happened with his career, the way that his career. Really took off. So I think he's a, a great person to maybe compare to or maybe to
0: aspire to in terms of, in terms of that as well. And Andy Murray, I think, was a similar one because he would be probably solidly number four in that time frame. And he lost, I think, his first three. Um, Yvonne Lendl, who helped Andy kind of break that streak, also lost his first few Grand Slam finals before breaking through in 1984 at the French Open. Um, and so, yeah, the more you put yourself in these positions, the more you learn about it and, and, uh, the more likely it becomes that you'll win one. So, um, I, I I would expect that, that Ans will continue to, to work on it, Nia, and, and, and we'll see her in more finals. And so there are, I think there are a lot of people that she can take inspiration from on this and, and maybe even get advice from about how to approach these, these upcoming opportunities so um, yeah so a very interesting uh, set of themes here from, from Wimbledon 2023 any any sort of last thoughts Josh on, on the championships this year no I mean I, I just you know I, I know also
1: on the women's side uh, players like Chris Ever um, and Simona Halep also I think lost their first three major finals so a couple of Um, Good comparisons there. If I recall, uh, Andre Agassi um, had 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 lost, I think, his first few as well. Um, So, yeah, plenty of players to, um, you know, maybe compare herself to or, you know, plenty of other champions who have had similar sorts of, you know, maybe challenges along the way. Um, But, yeah, I I think it's been a a great conversation, Um, maybe in terms of last thoughts. Um, I don't know. I think we've, we've, we've mainly covered it. I think it will be a really interesting um, summer in terms of, you know, the the U S hardcore swing. Um, And uh, you know, with all of this obviously leading up to the U S open. And uh, I think we will all be interested in seeing what happens, what happens there. I mean, you know, both on, on the men's side, both on the women's side, you know, I think could definitely see another Alcaraz Djokovic final. Um, I think, It'll be, we didn't really talk about Iga Sviantek here, but she has been, you know, the number one player with, um, yeah, you know, uh, Kazakina and Svitolina, sorry, Kazakina and uh, Sabalenka, not not too far behind with having a lot of success and, you know, winning a major title as well. So, uh, you know, it was too bad about Kaz- uh, about Kazakina in this tournament. And uh, yeah, it'll be, I think, a lot of contenders on the men's and women's side uh,
0: going into the U.S. Open and very excited to see what happens. Yeah, for sure. So um, as always, Josh, great, great conversation. So thanks for that. And thank you all for listening. For more on today's episode, you can check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for the two of us, please email us at TennisIQPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have the opportunity, also please rate and review the podcast so others can find it. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. And you can also check us out on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com/tennisiQpodcast/membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.